Section 22 of History of Egypt, Volume 2, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter 2. The Memphite Empire, Part 10. Uni acquitted himself so dexterously that he was called upon to act in a still more delicate capacity. Queen Amitsi was the king's chief consort. Whether she had dabbled in some intrigue of the palace, or had been guilty of unfaithfulness in act or in intention, or had been mixed up in one of those feminine dramas which so frequently disturb the peace of harems, we do not know. At any rate, Poppy considered it necessary to proceed against her, and appointed Uni to judge the case. Aided only by his secretary, he drew up the indictment and decided the action so discreetly that to this day we do not know of what crime Amitsi was accused, or how the matter ended. Uni felt great pride at having been preferred before all others for this affair, and not without reason. For, says he, my duties were to superintend the royal forests, and never before me had a man in my position been initiated into the secrets of the royal harem. But his majesty initiated me into them because my wisdom pleased his majesty more than that of any of his other lieges, more than that of any other of his mamelukes, more than that of any other of his servants. These antecedents did not seem calculated to mark out Uni as a future minister of war, but in the East, when a man has given proofs of his ability in one branch of administration, there is a tendency to consider him equally well fitted for service in any of the others, and the fiat of a prince transforms the clever scribe of to-day into the general of to-morrow. No one is surprised, not even the person promoted. He accepts his new duties without flinching, and frequently distinguishes himself as much in their performance as though he had been bred to them from his youth up. When Poppy had resolved to give a lesson to the Bedouin of Sinai, he at once thought of Uni, his sole friend, who had so skilfully conducted the case of Queen Amitsi. The expedition was not one of those which could be brought to a successful issue by the troops of the frontier nomes. It required a considerable force, and the whole military organization of the country had to be brought into play. His Majesty raised troops to the number of several myriads, in the whole of the south from Elephantine to the Nome of the Haunch, in the delta, in the two halves of the valley, in each fort of the forts of the desert, in the land of Iritit, among the blacks of the land of Maza, among the blacks of the land of Amamit, among the blacks of the land of Uauit, among the blacks of the land of Ka'a, among the blacks of the land of Totamu, and his majesty sent me at the head of this army. It is true, there were chiefs there, there were mamelukes of the king there, there were sole friends of the great house there, there were princes and governors of castles from the south and from the north, gilded friends, directors of the prophets from the south and the north, directors of districts at the head of troops from the south and the north, of castles and towns that each one ruled, and also blacks from the regions which I have mentioned. But it was I who gave them their orders, although my post was only that of superintendent of the irrigated lands of Pharaoh, so much so that every one of them obeyed me like the others. It is not without much difficulty that he brought this motley crowd into order, equipped them, and supplied them with rations. At length he succeeded in arranging everything satisfactorily, by dint of patience and perseverance. Each one took his biscuit and sandals for the march, and each one of them took bread from the towns, and each one of them took goats from the peasants. He collected his forces on the frontier of the delta, in the Isle of the North, between the gate of Imhotpu and the Tel of Horu Nibmait, and set out into the desert. 
He advanced, probably by Gebel Maghara and Gebel Helal, as far as Wadi el-Arish, into the rich and populous country which lay between the southern slopes of Gebel T and the south of the Dead Sea. Once there he acted with all the rigor permitted by the articles of war, and paid back with interest the ill usage which the Bedouin had inflicted on Egypt. This army came in peace. It completely destroyed the country of the lords of the sands. This army came in peace. It pulverized the country of the lords of the sands. This army came in peace. It demolished their doors. This army came in peace. It cut down their fig trees and their vines. This army came in peace. It burnt the houses of all their people. This army came in peace. It slaughtered their troops to the number of many myriads. This army came in peace. It brought back great numbers of their people as living captives, for which thing His Majesty praised me more than for aught else. As a matter of fact, these poor wretches were sent off, as soon as taken to the quarries or to the dockyards, thus relieving the king from the necessity of imposing compulsory labor too frequently on his Egyptian subjects. His Majesty sent me five times to lead this army in order to penetrate into the country of the Lords of the Sands. On each occasion of their revolt against this army, and I bore myself so well that His Majesty praised me beyond everything. The Bedouin at length submitted, but the neighboring tribes to the north of them, who had no doubt assisted them, threatened to dispute with Egypt the possession of the territory which it had just conquered. As these tribes had a seaboard on the Mediterranean, Uni decided to attack them by sea, and got together a fleet in which he embarked his army. The troops landed on the coast of the district of Teba, to the north of the country of the Lords of the Sands. Thereupon they set out. I went, I smote all the barbarians, and I killed all those of them who resisted. On his return, Uni obtained the most distinguished marks of favor that a subject could receive, the right to carry a staff and to wear his sandals in the palace in the presence of Pharaoh. These wars had occupied the latter part of the reign. The last of them took place very shortly before the death of the sovereign. The domestic administration of Poppy I seems to have been as successful in its results as was his activity abroad. He successfully worked the mines of Sinai, caused them to be regularly inspected, and obtained an unusual quantity of minerals from them. The expedition he sent thither, in the eighteenth year of his reign, left behind it a bas-relief, in which are recorded the victories of Uni over the barbarians, and the grants of territory made to the goddess Hathor. Work was carried on uninterruptedly at the quarries of Hatnubu and Kahanu. Building operations were carried on at Memphis, where the pyramid was in course of erection. At Abydos, whither the oracle of Osiris was already attracting large numbers of pilgrims. At Tanis, at Bubastis, and at Heliopolis. The temple of Dendera was falling into ruins. It was restored on the lines of the original plans which were accidentally discovered, and this piety displayed towards one of the most honored deities was rewarded, as it deserved to be, by the insertion of the title of Son of Horus in the royal cartouche. The vassals rivaled their sovereign in action, and built new towns on all sides to serve them as residences, more than one of which was named after the pharaoh. The death of Poppy I did nothing to interrupt this movement. The elder of his two sons, by his second wife, Miriri Anknas, succeeded him without opposition. Mirniri Metimsop I, Metasophus, was almost a child when he ascended the throne. The recently conquered Bedouin gave him no trouble. The memory of their reverses was still too recent to encourage them to take advantage of his minority and renew hostilities. 
Uni, moreover, was at hand, ready to recommence his campaigns at the slightest provocation. Metasophus had retained him in all his offices, and had even entrusted him with new duties. Pharaoh appointed me governor-general of Upper Egypt, from Elephantine in the south to Letopolis in the north, because my wisdom was pleasing to his majesty, because my zeal was pleasing to his majesty, because the heart of his majesty was satisfied with me. When I was in my place I was above all his vassals, all his mamelukes, and all his servants, for never had so great a dignity been previously conferred upon a mere subject. I fulfilled to the satisfaction of the king my office as superintendent of the south, so satisfactorily that it was granted to me to be second in rank to him, accomplishing all the duties of a superintendent of works, judging all the cases which the royal administration had to judge in the south of Egypt as a second judge, to render judgment at all hours determined by the royal administration in this south of Egypt as second judge, transacting as a governor all the business there was to do in this south of Egypt. The honor of fetching the hard stone blocks intended for the king's pyramid fell to him by right. He proceeded to the quarries of Abait, opposite Sahel, to select the granite for the royal sarcophagus and its cover, and to those of Hatnubu for the alabaster for the table of offerings. The transport of the table was a matter of considerable difficulty, for the Nile was low, and the stone of colossal size. Uni constructed on the spot a raft to carry it, and brought it promptly to Saqqara in spite of the sandbanks, which obstruct the navigation when the river is low. This was not the limit of his enterprise. The pharaohs had not as yet a fleet in Nubia, and even if they had had, the condition of the channel was such as to prevent it from making the passage of the cataract. He demanded acacia wood from the tribes of the desert, the peoples of Iritit and Uaiit, from the Mazayu, laid down his ships on the stocks, built three galleys and two large lighters in a single year, during this time the riverside laborers had cleared five channels through which the flotilla passed and made its way to Memphis with the ballast of granite. This was Uni's last exploit. He died shortly afterwards and was buried in the cemetery at Abydos, in the sarcophagus which had been given him by Poppy I. Was it solely to obtain materials for building the pyramid that he had re-established communication by water between Egypt and Nubia? The Egyptians were gaining ground in the south every day, and under their rule, the town of Elephantine was fast becoming a depot for trade with the Sudan. The town occupied only the smaller half of a long, narrow island, which was composed of detached masses of granite, formed gradually into a compact hole by accumulations of sand, and over which the Nile, from time immemorial, had deposited a thick coating of its mud. It is now shaded by acacias, mulberry trees, date palms, and dome palms, growing in some places in lines along the pathways, in others distributed in groups among the fields. Half a dozen sakiyas, ranged in line along the river bank, raise water day and night, with scarcely any cessation of their monotonous creaking. The inhabitants do not allow a foot of their narrow domain to lie idle. They have cultivated, whenever it is possible, small plots of dura and barley, bursum and beds of vegetables. A few scattered buffaloes and cows graze in corners, while fowls and pigeons without number roam about in flocks, on the lookout for what they can pick up. It is a world in miniature, tranquil and pleasant, where life is passed without effort, in a perpetually clear atmosphere and in the shade of trees which never lose their leaf. The ancient city was crowded into the southern extremity, on a high plateau of granite beyond the reach of inundations. Its ruins, occupying a space half a mile in circumference, 
are heaped around a shattered temple of Knumu, of which the most ancient parts do not date back beyond the sixteenth century before our era. End of section twenty two. Read by Professor Heather and by. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.